0: All three branches of government executive legislative and judicial and it's under one sovereign and it takes it out of the hands of the people and so you have these bloated bureaucracies and the increase in government and the people don't have the ability so you're contending uh, with the Bureau of Land Management uh, and you own property and the next thing you know you're trying to defend that it's been your family a hundred years and now you're in prison for whatever Um, We see this that someone declares your property be a wetland um, and and all these things happen and we start to see the individual losing this sovereignty and this ability to have um, their representatives defend them because the government's even gotten bigger uh, than the legislators themselves. Did we all follow that last week? So we're going to take a look at another constitutional crisis. And uh, we saw this one constitutional crisis when you saw Jefferson ascend to office and it was a bitter fight between him and Adams. And we almost, as I read it at the beginning, almost sounded like uh, Trump and Clinton, the same election and, and all the division there. And, and we saw this idea of the growth of progressivism that, you know, give us the power to make things better. Well, can you define for me what you mean by better? Well, the babies will be healthier and they'll be bigger and they'll be stronger and they'll be, okay, then we get to a perfect race. And we kind of concluded that picture with uh, Adolf Hitler and this idea of what do you mean by better and and where do you get your authority? Um, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, inalienable rights, and we also see the preamble of the Constitution, we the people, the sovereign. And so we saw this last week and it was a constitutional crisis in many respects, but one of the greatest constitutional crises in the history of our country uh, was what we, we came uh, to a struggle and an impasse uh, that resulted in four years of war and over 650,000 people dead on a field of battle. And it was a decision whether or not the United States would be, uh, whether, it would be the, whether there would be uh, slavery or secession. And so there's a quadrant here that divided the country. And in the U.S. Constitution, we have what's called the Three-Fifths Compromise. And uh, when, when, when the colonies broke away from England, or uh, when they broke away from the British Empire, um, the British Empire was fully slave at the time. And when the colonies broke away and they came under the Articles of Confederation, immediately uh, by 1788, six of um, six of the, th- no, excuse me, seven of the original 13 colonies became free colonies, free states, seven of the 13. And so y'all automatically see a divide in the country and they put that to rest because they had a greater concern. When you take a patient into uh, the emergency room, you have to do a thing called triage. You have to make sure they're breathing and their you know, they're, they're blood's staying in their body and their heart's beating. And you want to address the main issue first because you want to save the body. Maybe they have cancer, but we'll address that cancer later. Well, our founders realized we have to remain unified in order to defend ourselves because there would be the War of 1812. We have to defend ourselves against a greater enemy, so we have to seek compromise over an issue we are concerned with that literally divided the nation, not only um, in, in 1787, 1788, when the Constitution was ratified, but it also... Went on to be a a divisive aspect in our nation that split the nation in half, and and that's what resulted in this constitutional crisis. And the constitutional crisis tonight we're going to take a look at in regards to slavery with a three fifths compromise. What our founders did in the Constitution is they said, Look, you have an upper house and a lower house, you have a Senate, and the Senate, you get every state gets two senators, that's the upper house, and then the lower house, you get representation based on your population. So what's fascinating about the original divide, seven states free, six states, six states slave, is that the six states that were slave had very little population. The seven northern states had the greatest uh, concentration of population. And so they had greater representation. Our founders realized we can uh, effectually legislate the death of slavery um, in, in the United States of America. And they did it by the three-fifths compromise. What the Southerners wanted, they said, look... Our African-American slaves, we don't want them to vote, but we want them to be counted as citizens. Why? Larger population, more representation. So what the northerners said, and the, the free states, they said, well, we'll let you do that, but we're only going to allow a slave to be considered three-fifths of a person not because they wanted to demean or diminish them as a human being, but they wanted over time to use that. If you don't have the right to vote, then we're not going to give you full representation so that we can usher out the end of the slavery, at least put a pause button on it so we can face a greater enemy. And for anyone who's ever been taught that that was to reduce the value of an African-American, that is just simply not true. For example, um, Thomas Jefferson when he was governor of Virginia actually put forward legislation to end slavery in Virginia and it was turned down he actually wanted to do it through um, giving slave owners you know money in in exchange so that they wouldn't lose property in their mindset but he wanted to figure out a way to legislate slavery out of the equation Um, let's see We've got them all at the beginning. Let me just show you. Well, let me do this first. I I wanted to point this out. So there's there's four quadrants here, and as we take a look at the quadrants, the first one is uh, this will be the southern side, and their belief was slavery was right. Over here, the northerners believe slavery wrong now just looking at these two statements and considering our declaration of independence one of the reasons why our founders Jefferson Washington all of them wanted to do away with slavery they were slaveholders not all of them but some of them but all of them in agreement if you look at the founding documents you look at their writings all of them wanted to remove slavery from the United States why do you think that would be the case We've got, we got a hand raised, so I'm not going to take your answer. It's not an of right. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are. <laughs> when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve. So anytime, any people, and this was a declaration to humanity, and they're saying, we're struggling with this idea that we're calling all men equal and we're allowing slavery. And so they said slavery is wrong. We need to legislate it out of the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country. The Southerners believed slavery was right. They believed that an African American was not equal to a white man. They believed them to be subhuman. They also went so far as to say they they were doing African Americans a favor by involving slavery because it's God's will that the white man, the superior race would rule over the inferior race. Anyone in agreement with that tonight? Well, it's fascinating what occurred as a result of that. So, as they begin to do this, even before they had the Articles of Confederation, Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation stated that all of these colonies are coming into full agreement and cannot breach this contract. They are they are submitting their authority in this article of confederation that they are unifying themselves as one body which would be a federal in a sense articles of confederation a federal larger government larger than the states themselves and they're all agreeing to come under that power not they don't want a strong federal government but they're all agreeing to be unified for that sole purpose under the articles of confederation the states had to ratify it and they did and immediately after the articles of confederation They established what was called the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance, basically with the original 13 colonies, the Northwest Ordinance said any portion of the territory, if you went west, any portion of the territory that wanted to come into the United States as a state and qualify as a state had to follow the Northwest Ordinance. And in the Northwest Ordinance, it was clearly stated that no state coming into the Union could be a slave state, period. So they figured in one generation, slavery would be wiped off. They no longer were, uh, of the seven states that, that were free, they didn't operate in the African slave trade. It was outlawed in America for the African slave trade. It was outlawed in the Northwest Ordinance for the African slave trade. You couldn't get Africans in. The ones that you had when they, were, when, when, when they got old and died, that was it. And slavery would be dissipated, and they still had the ability to union together to fight a common enemy. Everyone clear on that? So as it started to happen, there was tension between the southern states and the northern states. The southern states wanted their slave population. And what you see happen up until 1860 is you see this precipitous uh, uh, increase, uh, one, one point, no, excuse me, three million slaves in the southern states, and by 1860, there's 19 slaves in the north. So one population went up, and the other went precipitously Down. Rapidly, And there was there was contention in the country for this. Now, they kept debating back and forth. And over here in the southern states, one of the things that they were advocating for is they said, we have the right to slavery. Our state agrees to slavery. And all of our state agrees to slavery. And so it should be legal in our state. And you, the federal government, shouldn't have any say in this issue. So what they said is, the state... Was the sovereign. Ah. What do you think the North said? Say it We the people. Now, of course, what started to occur is you had John C. Calhoun, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson packs the Supreme Court with pro-slavery justices. This issue continues to rise. The nation is divided. This theory is established. They even use biblical principles to establish it. Over here, they're using biblical principles to establish it. When I say biblical principles, I mean out of context. Over here, it's in context. And, And let's just take a look. This is what results in the United States as as um, as this issue starts to enmesh itself in the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country. This is uh, Josiah Wedgwood. You remember Wedgwood china? He's the one that put this forward in, in the British Empire to simply say, am I not a man and a brother? This, is what, this, this was inspired, Wedgwood was inspired by um, William Wilberforce who ended slavery in the British Empire 30, 35 years before America ever did. And, and this is where they started to appeal to the conscience of human beings. You know one of the reasons why the church isn't more pro-life is not more pro life Nothing, nothing hits our conscience. We don't see it. It's sterile. William Wilberforce would take parliamentarians and their wives on a cruise along the Thames and deliberately pull it alongside a British slave ship where you could, you could smell the stench of the dead bodies. And they would they, they, here they are dressed lovely and they're, they're, they're gagging by the stench. But we don't want to see this or talk about it. We don't want our conscience to be affected here. And this is a fascinating thing to me in America right now is you have the sexual revolution and we've gone through this with the icon of, of Hugh Hefner, who was a descendant of William Bradford, right? And the Plymouth colony and the Mayflower compact. His, his parents are direct descendants. Then you have, you know, Hugh Hefner established this, Sexual freedom, which is the libido dominandi, and, and the sexual freedom now is, is thrust upon America, and we go through the 60s, and, and everybody, you know, divorce rate increases, and illegitimacy, and single parent, it just, it just affects us all. And, and sex sells because it's the one way to oppress another human being. That's where you get this idea of libido. You have this ability through the most base concept of human understanding to oppress another human being. And so pornography takes off and, and it's all in our entertainment industry. And these, these icons rise in popularity. And then what occurs after that? What occurs after that is you protect this, this elite class that is producing this mass misery and now they can't keep it under wraps anymore. And all of a sudden America comes to a place where they're saying, you know, I got to pay to play and I've been sexually harassed, sexually violated, sexually abused by an industry that is involved in all this. And even and I'm, I'm talking right and left because it's the culture and we create this monster and we decry its existence. And all of a sudden America's gotten a conscience now, haven't we? Hope so. I hope so for political expediency maybe, I don't know, but if there is a a conscience, what's happening now is we're saying, wait a minute, this is not how you treat another human being regardless of the sex or the color of their skin. You don't treat another human being this way. And all of a sudden we're watching this every day. Someone else of an amazing, super high level, gone. And the whole nation is embroiled in this. Well, that's the idea of the conscience being affected. After a while you go, you know, this is just plain wrong. It's just plain wrong. Not enough room to sit up, let alone stand. And 60% of the cargo would be dead upon arrival. So for the entire time in the passage, you'd be laying next to a dead human being the floor would be filled with excrement, urine, vomit. Many of them were pulled from different tribes, most of them couldn't speak to each other. Amendment 13, the U.S. Constitution, that occurred after the Civil War, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to its jurisdiction. I share that with you because I wanna read this to you. If I can find it, yeah, here it is. This was in his, uh, uh, I think it was in his first inaugural address. He said, whoever in his heart would understand the meaning of America, and this is the American Legacy series, whoever in his heart would understand the meaning of America will find it in the life of Abraham Lincoln. And that was Ronald Reagan, January 20th, 1981. The person responsible for the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was none other than Abraham Lincoln. Take a look at this guy. He was a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, placed there by none other than Andrew Jackson. He served from March 17th, or he served up until October of 1864, two months before the end, I believe, of the Civil War and, and he was the fifth chief justice of the Supreme Court holding that office from 1836 until his death in 1864. Roger Brooke Taney. He delivered the majority opinion in the Dred, versus, uh, Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857 that ruled, among other things, that African Americans, having been considered inferior at the time, the United States Constitution was drafted, were not part of the original community of citizens, and whether free or slave could not be considered citizens of the United States, which created an uproar among the abolitionists and the free states. He was the first Roman Catholic chief justice, first non-Protestant appointed by the presidential cabinet, as attorney general under President Andrew Jackson, as well as the Supreme Court. This was what Thomas Jefferson said when he wrote to the Virginia legislature. If anyone thinks he was pro-slavery, he says, I think a change already perceptible since the origin of the present revolution, the spirit of the master is abating, that of the slave rising from the dust, his condition mollifying, the way I hope preparing under the auspices of heaven for total emancipation and that this is disposed in order of events to be with the consent of the master's. Rather than by their extirpation. Anyone who thinks he was pro slavery doesn't understand Thomas Jefferson. Our founders really, truly were anti slavery. Now, that being said, the South wanted to rewrite the mindset of not only the US Constitution, but also the thoughts of the founders. So, in order to say that slavery was right, the first thing they had to do was all men aren't created equal. And so folks like John C. Calhoun, uh, Jefferson Davis, um, and a number of others both pointed out saying, men are not created equal. Blacks are inferior to whites. The founders got it wrong. And this idea that we're all given inalienable rights doesn't apply to African Americans. And so they disagreed with the founding, and because they, they continued to implement the Northwest Ordinance, they continued to, to abolish the slave trade with Africa, because they continued to do the Three-Fifths Compromise, they finally said, look, as states, we are going to lose our income, and we don't agree with what you're doing. And they began to push back and they got pro folks in each of these areas. The Supreme Court was packed, able to put forward the Dred Scott versus Sanford case, and I'll explain that momentarily. It actually began with the Missouri Compromise, then, when the, then came the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and when the Dred Scott decision happened in 1857, that's when all hell broke loose. 1854 was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which I'll explain momentarily, and then prior to that, and in in I think it was the 1820s, 1828, they had the Missouri Compromise. Now, In order to justify this, they changed the idea of what we've come to realize and understand of the U.S. Constitution, where it says, we the people, the sovereign, right? They said, no, 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 the people aren't the sovereign. The state is the sovereign. The North said slavery was wrong and held to the Constitution and the ideals of the founders that the people were the sovereign. Now, what does that mean, and how did it bring us into a constitutional crisis, whether we become whether it be, there be slavery or secession, because the South pushed for it, and they pushed hard for it. And so, what occurred is, in, in the Missouri Compromise, you had Missouri coming into the United States. It wasn't part of the Louisiana Purchase, but it came in, it, was, it wanted to come into the United States, and it wanted to bypass the Northwest Ordinance. On the dock, it was Maine. Maine wanted to become a state, and they knew that Maine had no desires to be slave. And so what they did is they did a compromise. We'll allow Missouri in as a slave state, but we're going to allow Maine in as a free state, and we're going to leave it at that. And they drew the line. And everyone at that point was somewhat content, but the issue still wasn't going away, and they were still pushing and still stacking. And in 1854, what occurred was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which they hoped would resolve the issue, but it made it even worse. Has anyone ever heard the term bleeding Kansas or bloody Kansas? 1854, with the enactment of, of the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, what they basically said is, everyone who immigrated to these new territories, once the territory was established and the boundaries were established, the citizens of that territory could vote whether or not they wanted to be slave or wanted to be free. So what do you think the abolitionists did, and what do you think that the, the pro-slavery folks did? They stacked, the they stacked the state and pushed people in. They called them all kinds of names and they packed in and gunfights were happening. People were killing each other and it was vile and it didn't solve or resolve anything. And one of the things that it did do, is it an, it, there was a, uh, a, a one-term congressman who was debating a, a Democrat by the name of Stephen Douglas, and this one-term congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who'd lost more elections than he'd won, they debated on the eastern seaboard uh, with a guy by the name of Horace Greeley, who was a newspaper editor, and, and he was getting press time, going up and down, debating whether the United States should be slave or free. And, and that was where Lincoln uh, spoke of this house divided speech. Where he said, we're either going to be all slave or all free, but we can't be both. And Stephen Douglas, interestingly enough, though he was a Southerner and he was pro-slavery, he did not agree with the Dred Scott decision. Oh, excuse me. He didn't agree with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He struggled over that. And what the Kansas-Nebraska Act did is it actually split the Democratic Party, the, the strong advocates who wanted intense slavery and to reopen trade in Africa and go all in were different than the Northern Democrats who were sympathetic to slave owners but didn't want to go that far in. And so what the Democratic Party did in November of 1860 is they sent two candidates forward, a Southern Democrat and a Northern Democrat, which split their party. What had happened in 1854 with this Kansas-Nebraska Act is this was the straw that broke the camel's back and they were finally so upset that the Free Soil Party and and the Democrat-Republican Party just started to fall apart and up from the ashes rose what was called the Republican Party, started with 17 people in a congregational church in, uh, in Ripon, Wisconsin for the sole purpose of repealing the Kansas-Nebraska Act. They were even willing to go back to the Missouri Compromise, but they said this is not acceptable. And, and in 1854, they got an influx in the House and the Senate, and then something terrible happened in 1857, and that's where Justice Tanney put forward the Dred Scott decision, which basically said that no African-American on U.S. soil will ever be a citizen and will always be property. That's a Reader's Digest version of it. And that lit the powder keg. 1860, the party split, especially over not only the, Missouri, or the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Dred Scott decision, the Democratic Party split over both of those. A northern uh, candidate and a southern candidate, the party split and in comes There's a brand-new Republican Party that's having great inroads because they're doing what's right. And and in doing this, they face all kinds of of attacks, and it's visceral. And if you think that the press is bad today, you have no idea how bad it it, it, it has been and can be. And Abraham Lincoln won. He was ushered into into office. Seven states, I believe, before he ever stepped foot into office had seceded from the Union. Before he ever took the oath of office, seven states seceded from the Union. And uh, I think this was his first inaugural address. He said at the conclusion of his first inaugural address, in your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen and not in mine, is a momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you, and you can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government Well, I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. And what he was saying was this. This idea that the state is sovereign doesn't work. And you can't secede from the Union because the Articles of Confederation, Article 13, states that once you're in, you can't get out. You agreed. You sworn allegiance and joined us. There's been no violation of the Constitution. There's been no violation of the Articles of Confederation. And Lincoln argued clearly in the Articles of Confederation when he debated this, he simply stated that the Articles of Confederation were agreed upon by those colonies, and it was George Washington who stated, I will not oversee a Constitutional Convention unless the states call for a Constitutional Convention through the Articles of Confederation. If the states call for it, I will oversee it. He oversees it, they write the U.S. Constitution, And they wouldn't allow the U.S. Constitution to take over for the Articles of Confederation until every state ratified it. And the one that held out the longest was Rhode Island. Every state signed on. Every state agreed. Once you're in, you can't get out. It is an agreement. It is a union. And you don't leave because you're upset. And the southern states said, no, we want to leave because you are not understanding our sovereignty as a state. And Lincoln's comment is, you're not the sovereign. The people are. The people agreed to the Articles of Confederation. Everyone in the states agreed to unify. Every one of those states who agreed to the Articles of Confederation agreed to the Constitution Convention. And all of those states with we, the people, agreed to the ratification of the Constitution. Everybody's in, and the we, the people, have voted. And you can't supersede it because you're a state. The states created the the federal government, but the people created the states, and, and and, and that's how it works. Now, historical revisionists want to say that the states, it wasn't about slavery. Really, it wasn't about slavery. Just look at the, at the Confederate Constitution and you'll see clearly that it was all about slavery. They wanted you to think that it was all about states' rights. It wasn't about states' rights. It was about this idea that the states are sovereign and the people are not. That somehow they can break away... We hold these truths to be self-evident the whole matter created when in the course of human events becomes necessary for one people to dissolve their union with another. That doesn't work because there's no violation that they can list under what they agreed to adhere to in the U.S. Constitution. And Lincoln debated this. And he said, I'm not going to be the aggressor. He pointed this out in his, in, in his first inaugural address. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, not in mine is a momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. We're not coming after you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressor. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government. God, God's not recognizing this. You know exactly what you signed up for and you're not allowed to break it. And while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. And when this Dred Scott decision hit and then Lincoln comes into office, the nation is dreadfully divided. I want you to read on your own time about this guy, Justice John McClain. He was one of only two of the nine Supreme Court justices that dissented. And his statement in dissension was pretty profound and powerful. And there you have Dred Scott on the right. And the whole story about Dred Scott is a fascinating one um, in, in, many, in many respects. Uh, So you had Jefferson Davis, Alexander Hamilton Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, Thomas Jefferson, who was a president, John C. Calhoun, who was uh, just absolutely in favor of slavery. And they dedicated the belief that the black man is inferior to the white man. Um, I wanted to read to you this. Let me find it here real quick. Oh, Um, so. Jefferson Davis, 1861, when uh, Mississippi voted for secession, said, It is known to the senators who have served with me here that I have for many years advocated as an essential attribute of state sovereignty and the right of the state to secede from the union. And then you see what Lincoln says. He also said in his first inaugural, it follows from these views, no state upon its own mere motion can lawfully get out of the union. And the state said that the, uh, the South said that the state is sovereign and the federal government is merely a creature if the state of the state's making uh, and, and they have a compact with one another as citizens of the state, but not with the union. And Lincoln said, it doesn't work that way. The people are the sovereign." Calhoun rejected the idea that all men were created equal. Calhoun, he said, the union is again, merely a creature of the state. And Lincoln said, the state has no more legal standing than does the union. We, the people are the sovereign Rests in the people. It's a compound Republic states and national government are created by the vote of the people. And I, and, and, uh, uh, I trust this will be regarded, this national authority that's given by the people. And he didn't desire violence. He didn't desire dissolving of the union. He wanted, to res- he wanted to work it out. But they wouldn't have it. Now, the seven states of the original colonies that were anti-slavery, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, uh, well, excuse me, uh, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, And then the original 13 colonies that were slave were Virginia, Delaware, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Maryland. And this boiled down to conflict. And the minute he's elected, and he establishes this, and he lays it down, what then occurs from that point on is war is declared. The first shot's fired at Fort Sumter, and then the next thing you know, 650,000 people are dead on a field of battle, The 13th Amendment is established, the 14th Amendment is established, and the nation survives a constitutional crisis. And the warp and the woof of the fabric of the country is resolved. The nation is no longer slave, or even partially, and we are a free nation. How is it possible that we survive that? Well, we looked at this idea of a statute, an immovable object to be put on display. It's where we get the word statue when we began our studies together with the the statue of Michelangelo, or excuse me, of of David, 17 feet tall, white marble made by Michelangelo. And and the Latin cognate for the word statue comes with the Latin cognate statute. Both are movable objects to be put on display, and from that Latin cognate, we get the word constitution, a work of art to be put on display and to be protected, and it's to be able to withstand the test of time and any challenge that comes at it. And this was an, an enormous challenge, from the very inception of the nation, seven six, all the way up until the the, the civil war, and six hundred fifty thousand people dying on a field of battle. The union is maintained and the constitution holds fast. So, if you think right now in our country that we won't survive. There's only one thing that will allow us to lose our foothold and and have this Constitution destroyed, and that is one thing ignorance of the populace. Ignorance of the populace. If we forget who we are and what we've been given and we don't fight for it and demand it, we'll lose it. And in losing it, we're not going to have this sovereignty anymore. We won't be created equal. You see, the elitist says, you're less than me. You, you, you are a batch of deplorables. And I can use that on either side, by the way, because once you get into government, you become elitist. In many respects, not all, but many. And, 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 and I am smarter, and I know what's best for you. And no longer are they our representatives, they are our rulers. And the government becomes bigger, and we become smaller. And this is a concept that if you don't defend this liberty, if you don't defend this freedom, if you don't recognize who you are in the image of God, if you don't understand what gift you've been given and understand that there, there are moral absolutes that govern us as people, and these are the laws of nature nature's God, and this was a violation of the laws of nature nature's God, this was not. And if you remove that and they say, we're going to do what's best... We're going to do the better thing. And you say, well, that's fine. But what do you mean by better? Where do you get your moral foundation? From whence do you get your establishment? Because if God's not the sovereign of mankind, giving authority for man to rule one another in equality by representation, then you're going to get every other ism on the planet, whether it's fascism, communism, socialism, just go down the line and it's an oligarchy. And in relation to an oligarchy they 're going to tell you what you can and can 't do, and you will serve the state the state won 't serve you. Does everyone grasp that and And the only constitutional crisis we 're going to have in America if we don 't do something rapidly is we 're just going to have an ignorance of what 's in it. Nobody knows what 's in the Constitution ever, anymore. I wanted to read this to you, and then i 'll conclude, and we 'll take some questions. I had so many printouts and it was kind of a rough day since that Acorn article came out and I was very disappointed in it. I thought it was awful. Here it is. Uh, Sorry, almost there. This was his first inaugural address but this was his second. In his second inaugural address, in his first one, he was trying to stop war from coming Lincoln was in his second inaugural address after they had been embroiled in the war Abraham Lincoln realized he wasn't going to win re-election George McClellan was going to win for the Democrats and when George McClellan got into office he was going to seal the border and any black north of the Mason-Dixon line would be free and any black south of the Mason-Dixon line would be slave. And Lincoln called in Frederick Douglass to the White House. Very first time a black man had been invited into the White House, not as a servant or a slave, but as a human being. And he said to Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass recounted this, he said to Frederick Douglass, I need you to get as many folks south of the Mason-Dixon line to tell every black person, every African-American to get north. Because when McClellan wins, he's going to seal the border. Frederick Douglass realized in front of him was a man who understood equality and was deeply moved by that. Well, we all know that Sherman went all the way down to Atlanta and split the South. And as a result of that great victory, after you come out and and read the newspaper of who in your town died that day, and you watch relative after relative come in maimed, blind, bloodied, and you saw you know, black ribbons on on the homes of every widow. And as the carnage was increasing, and the good news happens that that Sherman makes it down to Atlanta and splits the south. And as a result of that victory, Lincoln was ushered into office. Everyone thought for sure McClellan would win, Lincoln won. And he realized it it was an act of God. And they said it was his second inaugural address. It was pouring rain that day and the heavens opened up and the sun was shining on him. And, and endless accounts from, from every spectrum in relation to this. It was like one of those magical moments in the history of America. And this was his second inaugural address. He said, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first, because you look at his first inaugural address and it's one of the longest. And no other president in the history of the United States quoted more scripture than Abraham Lincoln in both of his inaugural addresses. You know who quoted the second most? Reagan. 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 Then a statement, somewhat in detail, of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. And now at the expiration of four years during which public decorations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the intention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself. And it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to us all because that's uh, Sherman making it down to Atlanta." With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On occasion, corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it, all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation, Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. One eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which insurgents would rend the Union even by war while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territory enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already obtained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding Listen to this. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of, an, of another man's face. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that of neither has been answered fully, and the Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now will, wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as a woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword as was said 3000 years ago so still it must be said the judgments of the lord are true and righteous altogether with malice towards none and charity for all with firmness in the right as god gives us to see the right let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan and to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. What's interesting about this is when he gave the second Nogal address, everyone knew that the war was soon to be over. This was in January. I think the war would be over, over in April. It was just a matter of mopping it up. And with Sherman's victory in splitting the South, they were expecting him to gloat over this great victory that had cost the North so dearly. And what did he do? He blamed both sides. You know how irritated people were? In the reception line, nobody wanted to shake his hand. When he spoke about rending and or mending the the tear in the fabric of the nation and, and caring for our fellow brothers, they wanted their pound of flesh. And in the audience that day for his second inaugural address was a man known other than by the name of John Wilkes Booth who heard it and wanted him dead. And we know what happened on April 14th, 1865 when he got that bullet to the back of his head in Ford's Theater. He died on Good Friday. Good Friday, he breathed his last breath. And you know what all the pulpits in America said? What a shame that he would have been in a theater on Good Friday. We become so pious. That we don't become effective. We become so myopic. That we don't see the grander picture of the union. We have no clue about what all this means. Nor do we understand how to care for our fellow brother. The Noahic covenant in the scriptures. Declares that government is given by God. For the protection of man. And yet we dismiss government in the churches today. We dismiss it in our culture. As though It's boring. One of my favorites is people say politics is dirty and you know what I tell pastors to say politics is dirty I say so's a church. So what? One of my favorites is they say I can't vote for the lesser of two evils. I go, well, unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you will always be voting for the lesser of two evils. Right? And this is what I'll conclude with and I'll take questions tonight and I'm going to put on my pastor's hat. I remember someone coming to me and saying, I can't vote for an immoral man who's been three times married and twice divorced. This was a pastor. I said, really? Well, then you better take Samson out of the hall of faith and also take Rahab out. Tell me one moral thing about Samson's life. One. One. Fascinating part is he would spend an entire night in a prostitute's bed and then the spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he'd break the the bonds. To go pay off a gambling debt that he got in, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Read it, Judges 14, 15, it's all yours. Why would God pick a man like that? Judges 14, four is the answer. It says what Samson's parents didn't realize is God sought an occasion to move against the Philistines. Samson was willing to do what the moral people weren't. And that was to fight oppression. We're so pious that we don't want to get our hands dirty or get engaged. And yet you are sitting here tonight because people fought to keep this union together. And we don't even know what it's about. Not you. I'm talking about Christendom and the rest of the community. Now, you can't just hear this and dismiss it. That's like hearing, as a pastor, me teach the gospel and not telling anyone. Gospel, "ulangelion" means good news. I got good news for you. There is a government on the face of the earth that actually acknowledges that you've been created in the image of God, and you're created equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. And you have inalienable rights, and the purpose of the government was established to protect those in accordance with Genesis. And you say that to a pastor, they look at me like I'm from another planet. And I don't blame them because four years ago, I was the same guy. I'm not angry. I just have my work to do. And I'll leave you with this tonight, and I'll take questions. People are not the enemy. They're the opportunity. I got stung bad today. I didn't like it and that article on the front page was the exact opposite of what I was told it would be. And and it it was divisive. It was class warfare. It was inaccurate. Everything. And there's a part of me that just gets so frustrated and angry. I haven't texted. I haven't written a letter. I haven't sent an email. You know why? Why? Because I haven't processed it yet. The power of Abraham Lincoln is when his enemies would come after him, he would sit on those letters until his heart changed. And, And in the Lincoln Library, you see reams of papers that he had written and never sent. And you contrast them with the ones he did send. And he waited until he had a heart for the person a love for the person. You know what that is? A gentle answer turns away wrath. And then this thought. Lincoln never joined a church, and no one can ever testify that he was baptized. No man understood theology that has sat in the Oval Office better than Abraham Lincoln. Nobody. Elizabeth Keckley, who worked in the Oval Office, said she'd look over, it wasn't the Oval then, but would look over his office, over his shoulder, and see him reading the book of Job. His Bible was dog eared. And what we want is somebody to say, well, I did this, and so I'm in the club. But that guy did more for the purpose of righteousness than most of the pious people on the planet. And all the pulpits could do was decry the fact that he died on Good Friday in a theater. Pretty heavy, huh? But take that to heart, because he did. And he may have been taken out with a bullet to the back of the head, but he was the finest president the nation's ever had. Maybe, maybe second to Washington, but I don't think so. So, I'll get off my bully pulpit and I'll answer questions. We got eleven minutes. Yes. Well, Abraham Lincoln was determined to be the number one most you know important president. My question has to do with Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe. This is a little woman whose book changed the world. So the comment and the question about did did, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin with Harriet Beecher Stowe have any effect on the Civil War? Yes, it did, both positive and negative. Um, Positive in the sense that one of the reasons why we were ushered into a war as opposed to William Wilberforce who ended slavery in the British Empire without a shot being fired, godly Christian man, is because you had folks like William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe. These folks were they were strict abolitionists, no more. They had no desire to negotiate, no desire. They had drawn the line, and it's, it's this or nothing. There's no incrementalism, there's no, and so they drew the line. So it, it did force us into war in some sense, but they also drew the line. And maybe, you know, it can be argued that it was going that way anyways, and they just held the line. But I also think in addition to Harriet Beecher Stowe, who did prick the conscience of America through her writing. And it was, it was that book that pricked the conscience of America, similar to Josiah Wedgwood's picture of Am I Not a Man and a Brother, as you see this black man tied to a post, was uh, a man by the name of, um, oh, come on, it's slipping me, a Dutch Reformed church, uh, 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear. He started a prayer meeting on the second floor of the Dutch Reformed church in New York City, and he just began to pray. First day, three people show up. Second day, it was seven. And it, Horace Greeley, who was the same one who did the press releases for the Douglas Lincoln-Douglas debates, sent reporters out to go see how many prayer meetings were around the city. And in the course of less than a year, there were a million new converts to Christianity as a result of that revival and orchestrated prayer in a nation of 30 million. That would be the equivalent today of about 13 million people. In, or no, excuse me, th- thir- uh, th- 11 million people. That means that if there were 11, new, 11 million new converts, every church in America would have three, three services full and there'd still be about two million people looking for a place to worship. So this, this was a, a move upon the hearts of men. God uses government. We like to think that he doesn't so we don't have to participate. But he intends our hands to get dirty. The gospel, he says, make disciples of all people or nations? nations. Hello? Hello? nations show me in the scriptures where the gospel is to the individual the idea is we make disciples that means you change the culture so thank you that was set me off on a thing i wouldn't expect to share yes Yeah, so, um, Shanae's question was, do you want to go there? First of all, is this idea of a constitutional crisis in relation to gay marriage and states that uh, may want to pull out in, in regards to sanctuary states. Um, and, and just, you know, applying this, that the state is the sovereign as opposed to the we the people. And that sovereignty isn't over the earth, it isn't over the universe, it's over the earth that God commanded in Genesis 1. So, so here's, here's what's inter- interesting. I, as a Christian, putting my pastor hat on, God never intended that the state would be in charge of marriage. You have to go get a marriage license. The state isn't in that business. The church is. We already have the First Amendment that protects the freedom of religion. But the minute the state gets involved, that's where we have problems. So there is a way out of this, and it's one that I think we can operate in, in, in a manner that would be healthy. Because we, we do live in a society that is warped. We're all hurt. We went through the sexual revolution. People have associated with same sex, and we've created the monster. We decried its existence, but we've got to figure out a way through it. That one is doable. If they're going to push for sanctuary states, they're going to be doing this, and we're going to have a problem. But I think the greater issue... If, if America wakes up, it's going to be the abortion issue. Because that's a main plank for one of the parties. And we lost 650,000 people in the field of battle in the Civil War. That's more than all the other battles combined in the United States history. And we've lost, what, 65 million babies since Roe v. Wade in 73? So, uh, Back here. I did the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision. Dred Scott was the slave who was owned, and he had been brought into one of the free free states, free territories. The Dred Scott decision, eighteen fifty-seven. All right. Yes. Well, it's to be determined if the conscience of America has been raised or if this is just political expediency. Uh, It may have been raised in relation to sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and and the like. Um, But I would say I I don't know that we're there in regards to abortion. We could poll the room right now, and I bet you it'd be Um, 50-50. I get this often saying, you know, And and this is in the church. This is common in in what is called the evangelical church. They say, it's not a baby. I go, why? And and they use four arguments. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So I say, well, so you're saying a smaller person is less valuable than a larger person. No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, that's what you're saying about size. Well, it's its level of development. So I'm saying a a, a child is not as valuable as an adolescent or a fully grown adult. Well, it's its environment. It's in his mother's womb. So you're saying that I'm less valuable at home than I am here in the pulpit. Well, it's its degree of dependency, which is their strongest argument. It's its degree of dependency. But then the response to that is: so you're telling me somebody who's dependent on oxygen or insulin is less valuable than someone who's not? They don't have an argument. It it, it can be nothing other than a human being. It just but but we can argue it and do whatever we want. But it's also something we don't want to embrace because it's going to require us to face consequences. And the church doesn't want that, and people don't want that. We just want to be left alone. This was thrust into their face. But with Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Lloyd Garrison, and the folks that held the line, and folks like William Wilberforce, they never relented. And ultimately, when you see it, you go, I can't put up with that. I, I can pull up a picture. You saw the picture of the black man who had been whipped? How about if I pull up a picture of, of, a, of a U.S. quarter, and I'll show you a severed baby's hand on a U.S. quarter. And I'll show you it's two legs around a dime. And you, you, you even try to tell me that's not a human being. But you, you will preach a church down to a manageable size if you make that an issue. We're, I think we're one of three churches in the Conejo that, that even does Pro-Life Sunday. So, uh, two more here, back here. Can I just ask a easy question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what IVF, in vitro fertilization, so you, t- you take a. That sort of an procedure because so this this isn't an easy question. I don't know how you qualified that, but um, in vitro fertilization, you, you you take the sperm and the egg it creates a human zygote. So a zygote is a the the full DNA is a human being at an, at an embryonic stage, and so they create these IVF these these zygotes and they put them into the womb of a mother and some take some don't and uh many advocates say that that is a form of of abortion um there there's th- this is one of those things where you you can go right after the minuscule and defend abortion in cases of you know rape and incest what about the health of the mother what about and, and that represents less than 1% of 1% of all abortions. You can concede that, you can concede IVF, and still contend for the lion's share of them, but you get stuck in the weeds trying to defend these things. So I would say most churches would not agree and would not try to defend it, and, and they're probably not equipped well enough to defend it. Yes? It's a philosophical question. Oh, my head hurts. mm mm-hmm. is in defense of liberty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I, I concluded to the best of my ability tonight saying people are not the enemy, they're the opportunity. And in our church on Sunday, we studied Matthew 20. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant. If you want to be the greatest of all, be a slave. Consider others better than yourself. Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God, so he to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on a cross. Tyrannical is the article was written about me today and this whole thing, and I can, I, I can react and not respond. But the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And, and you calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child, it says in Psalm 131. I think you have to be governed. If, if you take this and say, we are going to defend the Constitution and, we're just, and you just rile up and get angry, you're going nowhere. You are just a, a donkey knocking down a barn door as opposed to a carpenter building one because nobody's listening to you. You're going on a long, lonely walk. You have to step into people's lives. And that's one of the reasons why the Constitution was developed that it is a deliberating process that takes time. So that remember we talked about Aristotle, you had the doing virtues and the thinking virtues, and those have to come together. And you have to have opposing views, and it's healthy. Because believe it or not, you do not have the corner of the market on truth. Right? You know, Reagan got it wrong. He said one of his worst decisions was um, no-fault divorce in California. And I was sitting with some folks today saying, I know I've legislated from the bench, and I've made mistakes. And, I'm, and, and it hits me. But you do the best you can with what you have and your mercy triumphs over judgment and you get mercy when you give it. So if you start to be that kind of a person, the community will respond to you. Lincoln, his enemies ended up loving him. It's 801. I have time for one more. Is it a question or is it a comment? It's a question. Okay. Okay. No. Nope. God already identified. No. The and no. I've been to seminary. No. Seminary. Cemetery. Seminary. <laughs> the answer is no, and it's because the instruction, the and instructors are no longer there, and the instructors were just. Pastors previous, and the pastors previous were students, and the students previous were, and if we're not teaching it, the kids below us aren't learning it, and those kids today are going to be pastors tomorrow. So if it doesn't exist, why are we surprised it it doesn't exist at the highest level? So it's 802, and you had a question. the the comment was uh if if a woman is killed and she's pregnant the 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 murderer is charged with two two deaths two homicides i i would say this um in the beginning god created is that a pretty simple statement how much of the world believes that just i i asked the question No, 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 my question. I'm, I'm going to a point. In the beginning, God created. Not much, of the world. Not much of the world. So if they don't know who they are, they don't know the value and who created them, it all happens with you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. You're creating the image of God. Who's going to tell them? They won't know unless someone tells them. I, I remember I was sitting in a school, the Planned Parenthood instructor was brilliant, captivating, And the person who came in for the pro-life was awful. How many of you have ever taught a pro-life class in school? I've taught over 300. Because I was so burdened by that. You want to know why they don't know? It's because no one's telling them. I've done 300. And I've done this. And I'm hoping it catches. All right, I'm finished. God bless you guys.